You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 296 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Happy you're back for another episode. If you like this podcast, uh, why don't you share it in social media? Or even better, leave a nice review on iTunes or even better, become a patron. All the links in the program notes. The topic this time in this episode is the Bible. Sounds boring? And there slew they the goats, yea, and placed they the bits in little pots. Here endeth the lesson. I disagree that it's boring. But then again, we will look at it more from the Gnostic perspective, which is far more interesting. Gnosticism is something that I've always studied and recently I've been on a sort of binge. But what is Gnosticism really? Maybe it would be good to have a brief overview before I proceed with this episode. After all, some of you might not fully understand what it is and for those that already do, it may be a good time to go and put on the kettle. This will only take a few minutes. I'm going to play a short clip from the DTFH podcast where Miguel Connor, host of the Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, gives his short introduction to Gnosticism. Uh, in short, the Gnostics were a movement that started, or actually I would say gained maturity about 2,000 years ago and uh, sort of branched out into two ways. One is the uh, pagan Hermetics, uh, and the other is the Christian Gnostics, probably both started in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, that great metropolis where all these ideas sort of stewed and so much speculation. We got the Neoplatonists, mystic Hellenistic Jews, just uh, Coptic Christians. Great, but the Gnostics really uh, caused a stir in the nascent Christian religion because they posited that we lived in a simulation. As my friend uh, Gordon White said, the Gnostics didn't say we lived in a false world because that idea definitely appears in the East. Here in the West, the Gnostics said, no, the idea is not false. This is a faked world. We are trapped in a world that's been coded on purpose to keep us humans here, the concept of the prison planet. And uh, we are here because of something that we have. We have something called a divine spark, as the Gnostics called it 2,000 years, call it the soul, human consciousness. And this sort of divine spark fuels the very, in some texts, the very universe that we live in. And who trapped us here? The Gnostics, uh, they had varying ideas. The Hermetics really were more positive that matter just fell in love with this divinity and brought us down. And here we are sort of understanding each other. But the Christian Gnostics had a lot of uh, harsher grim. They foresaw like there was this pre-cosmic cataclysm. And basically, in short, as a scholar Stephen Davis said, God went crazy and became us. Part of his essence (laughs) fell into the universe and was coveted 
by these uh, soulless mechanical beings that they call the Demiurge and his Archons. And the Gnostics associated the Demiurge with the God of the Old Testament because they said, there's no way this dude is the father of Jesus. This guy is bad news. But they also associated the Demiurge with other gods like Zeus or Saturn or Osiris. And they had trapped our cosmic divine, our, our divine spark here to feed on us. So us as humans, we had a duty, or for some of us humans, the ability to wake up and realize that we had a shard of divinity, a shard of eternity within us. And we could basically awaken this cosmic divinity like Neo in the Matrix taking the red pill. And we could commune with this, uh, as they called it, God above God. Uh, some of the Gnostics called this God above God Abraxas. We could be awakening by the teachings and facilitation of this Gnostic revealer. Uh, like Morpheus in The Matrix. Morpheus' job is to sort of help Neo sort of get himself to becoming the one. We can all become the one. The Gnostics saw this Gnostic revealer as often as Jesus. Uh, they didn't see Jesus as sort of saving us from our sins, but waking us up to our true nature to be able to escape the wrath of the Archons here in this simulation. But they had other... Uh, Gnostic revealers, Mary Magdalene, Sophia, Simon Magus. Some Gnostics saw the Buddha and Zoroaster as Gnostic revealers. And they could facilitate uh, what you might call our Gnosis, a central point of the Gnostics, which is this direct experiential knowledge and connection with this God above God, this higher consciousness, but also which, and also a revelation of this false world that we are trapped in. And this knowledge always seemed in their texts like this ritual, this astral travel ecstatic ritual. One thing about the Gnostics is they were an ecstatic shamanistic movement. You had to bring yourself into an altered state of consciousness. But at the same time, it's also a mode of self-knowledge. Self-knowledge is very important. As one, again, that scholar Stephen Davis said, uh, my salvation is the same as God's psychotherapy. If I save, if I go in and touch upon my divine spark and get rid of all the deprogramming and the false layers of who I am and make contact with my inner God, it's the same as if I took some shamanistic outer journey beyond the stars. So Gnosis was very important to the Gnostics. For this episode, I want to talk a bit about the Garden of Eden. Now, why is it important to look at Genesis and the Eden story? I mean, it happened so long ago. And did it even happen at all? Isn't it just a story, a legend? Why bother with it? Why is it important? Regardless of your beliefs, if you live in the West, the Bible has shaped our collective mind. Perhaps it has even done so in those parts of the world that are not necessarily Christian. In order to understand the present, we have to understand the beginning. And the beginning is important for our collective mind, since it concerns the fall of man into sin and despair. Which is a lie, by the way. When it concerns the Garden of Eden, generally, people have really understood it incorrectly. At least incorrectly from my perspective. You gotta make up your own mind in the end, of course. But before we go any further, we need to have yet another brief overview. 
See, not everyone might fully remember what the Bible says, and I'm going to quickly play the Garden of Eden story in the Bible as read by Sir Lawrence Olivier. This will only take a few minutes. Please note that this version of the Garden of Eden story is heavily edited by me. I've left out some parts irrelevant to what I will discuss. I think we should keep this tight and focused. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayst freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever... Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, 
and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the Tree of Life. The Nag Hammadi Library is a collection of early Christian and Gnostic texts discovered near the upper Egyptian town of Nag Hammadi in 1945. Thirteen leather-bound papyrus codices buried in a sealed jar were found by a local farmer named Muhammad al-Saman. The writings in these codices comprise 52 mostly Gnostic treaties, but they also include three works belonging to the Corpus Semeticum and a partial translation alteration of Plato's Republic. The Testimony of Truth is the third manuscript from Codex 9 of the Nag Hammadi Library. The copy of the manuscript from the Nag Hammadi Codices is in a very poor condition and is almost too fragmentary to read and comprehend. But it does have some things you can read and comprehend and those things are really interesting. The testimony of truth tells the story of the Garden of Eden from the viewpoint of the serpent. In Gnostic literature, the serpent has always been a principle of divine wisdom. And the serpent convinces Adam and Eve to partake of knowledge, while the Lord threatens them with death and jealously tries to prevent them from attaining this knowledge. And once Adam and Eve has achieved uh, the knowledge, they are expelled from paradise. So in other words, the serpent is actually the good guy and the Lord God in the Old Testament is the bad guy. Or as the Gnostics like to refer to him, the Demiurge. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. First of all, it's not good and evil. That's using words as weapons. Something the church fathers like to do when they compiled this book called the Bible. Sin is a transgression against divine law. And in this case, it's the law of the Demiurge, the Lord God in the Old Testament. It's his law. In short, things have not changed much. Just like it's dangerous to challenge the status quo in paradise thousands of years ago, so is it to challenge the current status quo. An archon in Gnosticism is any number of world governing powers that were created with the material world by a subordinate deity called the Demiurge. And of course the Demiurge is subordinate to the divine mystery. We all are, although I dislike the term subordinate. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Let's get back to that manuscript called the Testimony of Truth. You know, the gospel according to the serpent. I guess you could say. And in it, it says this. 
But what sort is this God? First, he maliciously refused Adam from eating of the tree of knowledge. And secondly, he said, Adam, where are you? God does not have foreknowledge. Would he not know from the beginning? And afterwards, he said, let us cast him out of this place, lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever. Surely he has shown himself to be a malicious grudger. And what kind of God is this? For great is the blindness of those who read, and they did not know him. And he said, I am the jealous God. I will bring the sins of the fathers upon the children until three and four generations. And he said, I will make their heart thick, and I will cause their mind to become blind, that they might not know nor comprehend the things that are said. But these things he has said to those who believe in him and serve him. The book of the generation of Adam is written for those who are in the generation of the law. They follow the law and they obey it. The archons rule our world, symbolically or physically, it doesn't matter. The Lord God, the Demiurge in the Old Testament, is the Demiurge. He is an archon. I find this text, the Testament of Truth, to be relevant to our current state in the world. No wonder the Gnostics were burned at the stake. They are, in modern times, like the punk, the rebel, the anarchist, or the outsider. They need to be, because you cannot see unless you take a step back and view the whole picture from afar. Enlightenment, liberation from this earthly realm, must not be obtained for the self. If that is the aim, you will not receive it. As Buddhism says, may I attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. The aim should be that we want everyone to see these archons. But it's difficult because they follow the law. The sheep follow the law. And what we need is lawlessness. We need anarchism. The word anarchy stems from the Greek anarchos and means basically no ruler. In my experience with the divine mystery, what I call the true God, well this experience I have is different than the demiurge, the Lord God in the Bible. The divine mystery, this true God, the supreme being as some Gnostics call it, is a true anarchist because God has no ruler, the true God has no ruler, whereas the Demiurge does have a ruler, and that ruler is the divine mystery. God is an anarchist. As above, so below, the alchemical maxim goes. And if the true supreme God, the divine mystery, is an anarchist, which he, she, it is, then we as humans should be anarchists as well. The symmetry of this makes sense from my perspective. It's time for people to shed their respect of authority, just like the snake sheds its skin, because authority is nothing more than the author, the authors of the law. Power only holds power if people believe it does. Naturally, the demiurge was pissed that the serpent had pulled back the veil on the con game. The Bible tells us. 
And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. If the demiurge punished the serpent to crawl on its belly henceforth, what did the serpent look like before? Perhaps it wasn't of any particular form. After all, the serpent, according to the Gnostics, was nothing more than divine wisdom. Perhaps it was divine wisdom in physical form, you know, like the gods in Hinduism, you know, they create these avatars that come down to earth. Who knows? But we are led to believe that serpents and snakes are connected with evil, and this is something that society has propagandized for thousands of years by now, uh, that, that snakes and serpents are connected with the devil, with satanic worship. Even David Icke says the archons that rule the world are lizard-like, reptilian-like serpents. But don't be fooled. Even Jesus said we should be wise as serpents. Says so in the Bible. Look it up. The great mystic Manly Palmer Hall points out in his secret teachings of all ages the following. How the serpent came to be in the garden of the Lord after God had declared that all creatures which he had made during the six days of creation were good has not been satisfactorily answered by the interpreters of the scriptures. Now he makes a good point. In the Orphic Mysteries there is an egg surrounded by a serpent. This signifies the cosmos encircled by a fiery creative spirit. The egg, apart from the cosmos, also represents the soul of the philosopher and the serpent, the mysteries. When initiation takes place, the shell of the egg is broken and the man emerges from the embryonic state of physical existence. And this, of course, ties in with the symbolisms of the Masonic initiation, where one comes from the dark into the light. In ancient Egyptian mythology, the sun god Amun-Ra emerged from the water in the shape of a serpent and inseminated the Nef, or cosmic egg, thus creating the world. In astrology, the serpent is featured as the 13th sign of the zodiac, known as Ophiuchus Serpentarius, or Ophiuchusum, I think, hard to pronounce. Or easier to pronounce, it's also called the serpent holder, which lies between Scorpio and Sagittarius. Plato called this 13th sign the god of the underworld, and later the Christians of the medieval ages changed it into the figure of Saint Paul holding a viper before they abandoned it altogether. The constellation of the serpent holder is the only sign of the zodiac which is linked to a real man that lived in ancient Egypt around the 27th century BCE. This guy was called Imhotep. The attributes of Imhotep can also be found in the biblical Hebrew Joseph, son of Jacob. 
Imhotep is credited with many accomplishments, including the knowledge and use of medicine. It's said that Imhotep brought the art of healing to mankind. The symbol of a serpent was used to represent Imhotep. H.P. Blavatsky writes in her book Isis Unveiled that Before our globe had become egg-shaped or round, it was a long trail of cosmic dust or fire mist, moving and writhing like a serpent. This, say the explanations, was the spirit of God moving in the chaos until its breath had incubated the cosmic matter and made it assume the annual shape of a serpent with its tail in its mouth, emblem of eternity in its spiritual and of our world physical sense. In Greek mythology, the symbol of a serpent biting its own tail signifies the unending cycle of nature. This is known as the Ouroboros, and often resembles either a circle or an eight. One of the most ancient representations of the Ouroboros can be found on a bronze disc from Benin. Jean Chevalier and Alain Gerbrandt describe this disc in their book Dictionary of Symbols as doubtless the oldest African imago mundi, where its sinuous figure associating opposites encircles the primordial oceans in the middle of which floats the square of the earth below. Euroboros is also of course a symbol of as above so below. So you see there are many examples in the occult and esoteric history of the world regarding the serpent. But I'm not done yet. I've just gotten fucking started. Because although the serpent is not necessarily always single or serpent-like, sometimes it's doubled. Two serpents entwined or next to each other. Other times it possesses wings, arms or legs. The serpent with wings is also seen as a dragon, which is a union of two opposing principles, since the dragon lives in water and spits fire. It's also in the air, so maybe it's three. Uh, anyway, Jeremy Norby writes in his groundbreaking book, The Cosmic Serpent, DNA and the Origins of Knowledge. Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec's plumed serpent, is not a real animal either. In living nature, snakes do not have arms or legs, and even less wings or feathers. A flying serpent is a contradiction in terms, a paradox, like a speaking mute. This is confirmed by the double etymology of the word kotal, which means both serpent and twin. As the creator of life, the cosmic serpent is a master of metamorphosis in the myths of the world where it plays a central part, it creates by transforming itself. It changes while remaining the same. So it is understandable that it should be represented differently at the same time. I highly recommend the book The Cosmic Serpent. Go check it out. In the serpent's physical attributes, we can easily see the symbol of the male from its phallic shape and also its female quality when it sheds its skin in a regenerative fashion. Here again we find a duality, but a duality that leads towards unity, as above so below, again. And yes, this is most obvious in the Ouroboros, where the serpent tail in mouth represents sexual union with itself and forms an androgynous image. In alchemy and medicine, which both 
aim to either transform, regenerate or heal, we find all the qualities that the serpent represents. Therefore, it is portrayed in two of the most famous ancient symbols of these sciences, the caduceus of Hermes and the staff of Asclepius. The former is a staff with two serpents and the latter is a, is a staff, sometimes a cross, with one serpent. When a serpent attacked the Buddha, as the legend goes, it bound itself seven times around Buddha's waist, which could be symbolic of the seven main chakras, each with different attributes and powers, aligned from the base of the spine to the top of the head. But because of Buddha's inner strength, the serpent surrendered and became his follower. The serpent here is not a malevolent creature that Buddha masters, but instead the cosmic energy that lies coiled up inside that he gains control of. This energy is the Kundalini, derived from a Sanskrit word meaning either coiled up, coiling like a snake or serpent power. It's funny that the Genesis contained the word gene. Genesis since DNA resembles in form two serpents that are entwined, much like the caduceus of Hermes. Since ancient times there have been columns, trees and staffs with serpents climbing or twirling around them, and throughout the ages it has been the image of the art of healing and not evil. The staff of Asclepius have often been confused with the caduceus, the staff of Hermes, and although the former is clearly a symbol of medicine and healing, the latter has often taken on this role in the collective mind. The Encyclopedia Britannica clearly states that the staff of Asclepius is the only true symbol of medicine. It also says that the Caduceus is without medical reference since it represents the magic wand of Hermes or Mercury the messenger of the gods and the patron of trade. Modern pharmacies probably began using the serpent as a symbol for their business because they sold the antidote to snake venom. In a study conducted by Walter J. Freelander on the, on the use of these two staffs in logos and insignias in American health and medicine organizations, he found that the staff of Asclepius was a more common symbol for organizations related to health or medicine, and the caduceus was more for commercial organizations. The reason commercial organizations favor the caduceus, the one with the staff with the two serpents, is according to Friedlander uh, because it's more symmetrical, a more pleasing symbol to the eye, and thus making it a greater tool for marketing. Or could it be because Hermes was the god of, among many things, uh, he was the god of commerce? Anyway, the staff of Hermes, the caduceus, it symbolizes the above and the below, the visible and the invisible. And the two serpents crawling and twirling around the staff represents moving in and out, up and down, between these two realities. In a sense, the serpent is more than just the source of wisdom. It is the vehicle of wisdom. And according to the Gnostics, the serpent in the Garden of Eden is divine wisdom. So it's the good guy. But isn't the serpent Lucifer? 
isn't the serpent Satan? That's what I've heard. Lucifer is the light bringer, the liberator. Lucifer is one of the most misunderstood of all the myths. Whether it be mistranslation or or ignorance, I don't know. But Lucifer is one of the messengers of, of the gods. His name is translated to mean morning star. In the Gnostic belief, Lucifer came to the earth to help man remember. Help him wake up and remember his divine origin. The divine origin of his soul. Lucifer is here to help man free himself from the physical limitations of body in which he is trapped and free him from the created time and matter in which he is imprisoned. Lucifer was considered an opponent to the creator of the world, to the demiurge, as he gives us the gnosis, the knowledge. Lucifer brings the light, he brings the liberation. And he made a great sacrifice descending into earth to give us the knowledge so that our eyes could be open, so we could see our divine origin, so we can avoid this life of servitude. Servitude to the real devil or devils, to the archons. And the leader of the archons is the Lord God, the Demiurge of the Old Testament. Many still do see Lucifer as an exterminator, a hater of man. When he did make his sacrifice to illuminate man, he became the uncreated. So what he does exterminate is in fact matter, which is impure. The soul of man will continue to remain imprisoned if man, that includes woman of course, if man and woman does not allow him or herself to be illuminated. As it reads, and it's one of my favorite quotes to quote, as it reads in the Gospel of Philip, another Gnostic text, those who say they will die first and then rise are in error. If they do not first receive the resurrection while they live, when they die, they will receive nothing. You know, I um, I have, um, when I was in the Amazon, I bought a few blankets with like Shipibo patterns and symbols on them. And they are hanging all over my house uh, on the walls. And uh, some of them have serpents on them. So I, I actually, when I was doing the preparations for this episode, I walked around to see how many serpents there were and how many I actually had on my walls. And I, I had way more than I thought. So <laughs> when you drink ayahuasca, the serpent, or more precisely the anaconda, is uh, is a very important symbol. And you do see it. And the serpents in, in, in the visionary states of ayahuasca can represent ayahuasca itself. Uh, and ayahuasca is a vine, so it kind of looks like a serpent when it grows, you know. Um, in short... You, you should ally yourself with the serpent. Not ally yourself with that douchebag called the Lord in the Old Testament. Because that's actually the demiurge. Here's uh, comedian Jim Jeffries. If God showed up at a party, he'd be the least welcome person in party history. 
Right, everyone would be having a good time, then someone would go, don't look up. <laughs> oh no. God's here. <laughs> hey God, how are you going? We didn't know you were gonna be here. Yeah, well, I'm fucking everywhere, aren't I? So why the fuck wouldn't I be here? Well, God, it's really great to have you here. We're really happy you're here. And then God's like, everyone, everyone, can everyone please be quiet and look at me right now? I've come down to tell all of you, I want you all to know that I love all of you unconditionally. And they're like, thanks for that, God. We really appreciate that. And they go back to their party. And then God goes, is that all you have to say? <laughs> Sorry, God. I just said I love you. Oh, fucking shit, yeah. Um, we love you too. Good, good, good. Because you know if you don't, you'll fucking burn, right? <laughs> yes, God, we, we, we really love you. We really love you. Do you love any other gods? No, we don't. We really don't. <laughs> okay, cool. Sorry, everyone. I'm sorry. I've had too much to drink. I'm sorry. And then they go back to their party and obviously God's not getting enough attention. He pipes up again. Everybody, one last thing. I know you all said you love me and that's really cool of you. I want you to do one more thing for me. Now, I want to point out that you won't burn if you don't do this, but it would go a long way not to burning if you get my fucking drift, <laughs> right? It would be really great if you could all sing songs about me. And they're like, sorry, God? I made the fucking world. Just sing a fucking song. What's the problem? And they're like, yeah. Yeah, we can do this, can't we, gang? Let's sing some songs for God. And they start singing some gospel music. And again with, God's fucking digging it. And halfway through this song, God starts to turn. Everyone stops singing. Who's the guy in the pink shirt who's enjoying singing? Oh, 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 that's Brian and his boyfriend. <laughs> you know I hate faggots. <laughs> but God, 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 calm down, calm down. You just said you love everyone, not faggots, I didn't. <laughs> and then people are trying to calm him down. He's like, don't you fucking touch me. Don't touch me, you faggot lover! <laughs> They're like, God, it's probably best you just leave this party. You're all gonna fucking burn, all you fucking cunts. <laughs> and he goes outside and he's trying to calm himself down. I fucking hate faggots. <laughs> I couldn't be clearer about this. It's in my book, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Everyone's got the book. No one's fucking read the book. Everyone's got the book. Then he passes like a young couple holding hands. He's like, hey, how you doing? You see that tree? I fucking made that shit. Hey, wait. Wait. Are you two married? No. Well, don't fuck each other. I hate young people fucking. And I hate faggots. I also hate people eating shrimp. 
I mentioned that eight times in my book where I only mentioned twice that I hate homosexuals. But people seem to really enjoy eating shrimp, so I've forgotten about that rule. <laughs> but I'm still very certain I hate faggots. man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever, the man has become as one of us. The man has become as one of us. Us? Become like us? Why would the Demiurge use that term? Did he use that term because there were more archons hanging around in paradise, just like the Gnostics claim? The majority of scholars believe God is referring to himself in the plural and is talking to God the Son and the God the Holy Spirit, but I call bullshit on that. It's very creepy saying us. He will become like us. The Demiurge does not want humans to become the immortal gods that they are. The Archons wants you to be full of sin. It wants you to be fallen from grace. Even if Jesus died for your sins, you are still full of it, according to them, according to the Archons. Reject this. Reject it. Not only in thought, but in body. I'm going to quote that testimony of truth again. There are some who, upon entering the faith, receive a baptism on the ground that they have it as a hope of salvation, which they call the seal, not knowing that the fathers of the world are manifest in that place. But the baptism of truth is something else. It is by renunciation of the world that it is found. By those who say only with the tongue that they are renouncing it are lying. And they are coming to the place of fear. Moreover, they are humbled within it. Just as those to whom it was given to have been condemned, they shall get something. Basically, you cannot do this half-assed. You gotta reject the world and still be in it. And that's difficult. The path towards liberation, freedom, the path towards compassion and love is the great jihad and for most people the term jihad is deeply connected with terrorism however this is not really accurate jihad basically represents the struggle with the self and with god and is classified in two groups it's the lesser jihad and the greater jihad and like in alchemy this is the islamic version of the above and the below now the lesser jihad is the holy war that jihad is mostly known for In Islamic mysticism, Sufism, there is the concept of the greater jihad, which is the struggle against oneself and the struggle to be at one with the beloved, which is Allah, God, the source, divine mystery, call it what you will. Or in other terms, it's the struggle within oneself against sin. But yet again, sin did not originally mean what it represents now. Sin was simply missing the mark, falling off the wagon, not seeing the forest for the trees, etc. We are all on a spiritual quest of some sort, consciously or not. And for me personally, I am always at war 
in the realm of the greater jihad. Let's end this episode on the Garden of Eden with a quote from the Prophet Muhammad. The greatest jihad is to battle your own soul, to fight the evil within yourself. If you like this podcast, but want to feast your eyes as well as your ears, perhaps you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Simply search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and it shall appear. Or click the link in the program notes of this episode. I put a lot of effort into the videos I make and hopefully you'll enjoy them. If you want to support me, please subscribe on YouTube and even better, leave a like or a nice comment. YouTube is severely lacking in nice comments, so with your help, let's change that. Anyway, I hope I will see you there. I hope you learned something in this episode. Uh, I did at least when I made it. It does not feature in the episode, but I did discover a podcast called The Bible Geek Show that helped me a lot. Uh, I recommend it. Uh, It's very interesting and it's not fundamentalistic in any shape or form. It's refreshing. But you gotta be a Bible geek to enjoy it. Uh, That's a given. Now it's time for some music. The Lost Tapes of the 27 Club was developed by Over the Bridge, an organization that aims to change the conversation about mental health in the music community while providing a compassionate environment for members to thrive. The song you're about to hear was created using artificial intelligence, an AI algorithm learned from the music of Nirvana and created the song called Drowned in the Sun. I'll see you in a week. Stay away from those fucking archons. Freedom is in the mind.